Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, Tim stole my thunder. Sorry about that. No. <laughs> I, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but we all as a church have actually witnessed what I would consider close to a miracle, and you probably don't even know it. Tim took us through the entire third chapter of Acts in four Sundays. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, he deserves a medal for that. And when I approached him regarding this teaching, um, he said, well, we're right at a chapter break, so if, you're, if you think you're ready, we could do it now, otherwise you're going to have to wait till chapter, the end of the next chapter. And I'm thinking, that's like 2025, you know. So I better jump in here now. So here we are. So um, as, as Tim said, uh, this is uh, my, my heart's passion. I, I think that the Lord got a hold of me through apologetics, and that seems to be why I'm so um, interested in studying apologetics. And I'm so grateful to the Lord that he has given us such an abundance of resources and the faith that we have is a reasonable faith it's evidence based we're not a bunch of kooks running around with following legends and myths we're actually based on historical evidence and it's, it's a blessing that, that we have been given so much and, you know, as Tim said, as we're interacting with the world, we need to be prepared to give a defense for what we believe. And so this is, hopefully this is a, a, a little bit more of, a, of information to bring to you to help you make that defense. Now, the title of the teaching is Jesus, Lord, Liar, Lunatic, and then I added at the end, or Legend. And um, the intent when I started this study was to just have the first called the trilemma, Lord, liar, or lunatic. And so I was studying and, and preparing, and, and it, 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 in my mind it was going to be like a Sunday, one Sunday teaching. But as I was studying, I ran across an argument that saying that this is not of the, the, the logic and the, you know how you have to use laws of logic when you are making arguments. And, and um, one person contended that um, this isn't a valid argument only because uh, there's one aspect that we are leaving out here. And that is that the, G- the Jesus of the Bible may not be the Jesus of history. Meaning that somehow legend had crept in. And I want to kind of I want to use the whiteboard here for this one illustration to show you what I mean by this. So um, <clears throat> let's see if this works. I'm going to do a timeline here. So what what I want to do? Okay, can you guys see this? Okay. So we're starting here with the cross. That's the events of history. There's no argument about the events of history. And um, we'll get into this at some point, but just so you know, there are over 18 external, extra-biblical documents that record the life of Jesus. So it's, it's non-Christian, non 
favorable to Christianity uh, sources that record the life of Jesus. And they record many, many of the facts that we believe about Jesus are recorded in history. So, so that, this is not disputed. Most, all the, the, the New Testament critics and, and people that study, there are people that study the New Testament that aren't believers. I don't understand why, but there are people out there that study the New Testament and they don't, they don't believe in it. But they study it. So the issue is that what I'm going to be addressing today is that um, I'm going to put a, a, a point of time here, which is 70 A.D. That's an important point in history, right? I mean, that's like a major milestone in the history of the, of the people of Israel. And um, so what we have is this, at some point along here, did the, when did the Gospels get written? Did anybody know when they started being written? Well, those numbers are all over the place, just so you know. But there's a gap. The point is that I'm addressing here is that there's a gap between here and the first Gospel, which most people think is Mark. So we'll just go with that idea. So, some people say Mark was written as early as 40. Some people say Mark was written in the 50s. So we could have, now, Jesus was crucified, most will say 33. Okay? So there's this gap here between the event of history that's not argued about and then the documents that were written in history. And that gap, some people will put it at you know, 30 years, 60 years, but there's a gap. The bottom line is there's a gap, and this is where this idea of legend comes in, where they say that, that the story got corrupted, the story got changed, the story got added to, the story got uh, exaggerated, and so that's why I added this, because we need to we need to address this issue here. Okay? Now, there are some things that we're going to talk about, and I want to try to make sure that I, we, um, we're going to address, as we go through this teaching, um, so the gap, and we're going to close this gap, by the way. During this teaching, I'm going to close this gap all the way down to um, the cross. And it's, 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 Beautiful how the Lord does that. And uh, so we're going to do that. Um, we have to ask the questions, some questions. Why did it take so long for them to write the Gospels? Why didn't they just write it right away? So we're going to answer that question. Uh, why do critics assign such late dates? Now, critics will put Mark over here after 70 A.D., and everything else comes after that. So that's a late dating. Some of them put like Mark at 90 AD or later. And then all the other Gospels into the second century. So that's a big gap, right? It's a huge gap of uh, from 33 to 90. That's 60 years. Or if it's even later, as some will argue. So we're going to address that and we're going to refute that. 
And uh, so the question is, was there time for legend to creep in? And we're going to answer that and say no. Um, how was the gospel tr- message transmitted during this time between the events of history and the first writings of the New Testament? How was it transmitted? How did people get the message across? And how, how faithful is that communication? And who communicated this message? Uh, how, how, so it's called oral tradition, right? So how reliable is that? Were they faithful to the message? Another, this is where the critics say, well, there's room for corruption to creep in. So we're going to address that as well. And then we have, once the writing started, we have these manuscripts. I'm just going to put, this is the manuscript. They're always in um, abbreviated manuscript, MSS. We have these manuscripts that started. Now, what was, anybody remember what the New Testament documents were written on? Written on papyrus. Well, papyrus doesn't last hundreds and hundreds of years it was it was really uh, lasted maybe um, I forget what the number was somewhere like 60 to 90 years or something like that so every copy of what we have of what they call extant manuscripts which is remaining manuscripts are all copies of copies so again critics say well if you got copies of copies of copies of copies then there's so much room for corruption. And we're going to be able to go all the way back and show that these manuscripts that we have today, we're actually getting more accurate and closer to the message and closer to the event of history, not farther away. So that's the goal of this teaching. So there's a lot um, that I've um, put on my plate to try to accomplish. That's why it just grew to a point where it's like, there's no way I could do this in one Sunday. So um, I'm going to try to do this in um, maybe two, uh, maybe, maybe even longer uh, than two, maybe three. But that's the goal, okay? So that's the whiteboard. <laughs> so... Oh. Um, if you can go to the second slide, this is um, again. This is a statement from. Oh, you have to. Yeah, I didn't realize I did transitions. Uh, Vodi Bakum, uh, one of my uh, favorite uh, preachers outside of uh, Tree of Life. Uh, he wrote this. He said this in a in a teaching. He says, "I choose to believe the Bible because the Bible is a reliable collection." of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses which report supernatural events in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claimed their writings were divine and not human in origin. And so, again, it's reasonable to believe what's been written and we can also have confidence in the fact that what we have is what they had. What we have today is what the message was from the beginning. It hasn't been corrupted and it hasn't been twisted and it hasn't been um, exaggerated. So, um, but when we get into the topic 
of supernatural is when people freak out. Because naturalists don't believe in supernatural. So this is where we get into some dating issues. Because just, just to give you an idea here, this, this date here is critical because what critics say is that Jesus so accurately predicted the destruction of the temple, there's no way that happened before the destruction. It was too accurate. So it had to have been written as history, not as a prediction. So that's a presupposition that they start with when they study scripture, when they study the New Testament, is the fact that, that there's no way that, that somebody could have known the act, with accuracy predicted how the temple was going to be destroyed. So that's a big milestone for them, and it's a big stumbling block for them. But for us, that's not a problem at all. Because we, you know, we realize that there are supernatural events that have taken place, and I'm convinced that, um, that all of these, all of the Gospels and New Testament writings were completed before 70 AD. And I think I, I'll be able to, to show that. So, it's a reasonable faith. So, um, and the thing that, that when we're witnessing to people, you can go to the next slide. Um, you can't argue somebody into the kingdom. We all know that, right? You can't logic somebody into the kingdom. You can't be so smart, so clever, that people just are overwhelmed by, by your information and, and choose to, to believe. They're believing because the Lord is working in their hearts. And what we want to do is be, as this scripture in John uh, 3.8 says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. So we're to be the vessels to be moved by the wind of the Spirit, the move of the Spirit, to speak to whom he leads us to speak. And to be prepared, as, as the previous scripture in, in Peter uh, states, to be prepared to defend what we believe. And there are going to be people who, who, who hear the message and they're receptive. They're people of peace. I think it's not the term that was used when Jesus sent the 70 out. That if you, if you go out and you witness and you share and it's met by people of peace, then stay there and preach. But if they're, if they're not ready to hear it or they're not willing to hear it, then move on. And that's kind of what we do in our lives. You know, we share who we are, we share what we believe, and some people are very receptive of that and others are not. So um, the idea is that here is that we can't convince people uh, uh, to believe, but we can and are um, uh, holding to a reasonable faith. It's not unreasonable. So if you go to the next slide... This, this Lord, liar, or lunatic uh, concept was first uh, popularized by C.S. Lewis in, the late, in the 1942. Um, however, he's not the one who actually um, came up with this idea. 
there's a gentleman <clears throat> by the name of, if you go to the next slide, John Duncan, in the late uh, 1700s, he said this, <clears throat> Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud, or he was himself deluded and dece- self-deceived, or he was divine. There's no getting out of this trilemma. It's inexorable. You can't escape it. It's, Jesus said so many things that people will say, and when we talk to people, they'll say, well, you know, I believe Jesus was a good person. I believe he was a good teacher. He was a good moral teacher. He was a good example. But I don't believe he was God, right? Has anybody had that, that interaction? Well, he didn't leave that as an option, is the point. He didn't leave that as an option. You can't be a good guy if you're telling people, I'm God, trust in me only. If you're not God. So either you're a liar, because you know you're not God, and you're lying about it, or you think you're God. Now, we have all kinds of people who think there's lots of things. But they could be crazy. So if you're not able to back up your, your argument, then, you know, you're, you're insane, basically. But even uh, that was also uh, the same statement, if you go to the next slide, was made by Watchman Nee. Anybody heard of Watchman Nee? Um, He was a Chinaman. And uh, he said this. He says, A person who claims to be God must belong to one of three categories. First, if he claims to be God and yet in fact is not, he has to be a madman or a lunatic. Second, if he is neither... God or a lunatic, then he has to be a liar, deceiving others by his lie. Third, if he is neither of these, he must be God. You can only choose one of these possibilities. And if you do not believe that he is God, then you have to consider him a madman. So he didn't leave the option. So when we're interacting with people, we can, we can say that. You know, it's like, look, Jesus didn't give us the option of just saying he was a good teacher. Because if he was just a good teacher, but he wasn't God, then he's, he's crazy. He's a liar. And so that puts, he, Jesus forces a decision. That's the point. He forces us to make a decision about who he is. And so that's, that's what we want to be prepared to, to share and prepared to stand that uh, and make that point with people when we're talking to them is that look he didn't leave that option you can't just accept him he he as a as a good man he didn't leave us that possibility so uh, so again as we go to the next slide in terms of logic are the terms clear in this argument the lord liar lunatic yes is the logic valid yes but are the premises true no because there's another option. And this is where it kind of threw a wrench into my study because I had to go down this entire trail of looking into this concept of legend. So what, uh, I think it was um, uh, William Lane Craig, is that his name? Um, Proposed this or argued this, that it, the, the idea of that, the Jesus of the Bible isn't the Jesus of history is another possibility and so the trilemma argument becomes more like a quadrilemma argument so um, and really the idea 
if you look at dilemma or trilemma, it means that it's a bad choice out of three choices. Well, that's really not exactly what we're talking about here because the fact that he's Lord is not a bad choice. That is the right choice. So it's, it's kind of a little bit of a mis, misnomer to use that. But here's the idea um, as far as legend goes. And now I'm going to use myth and legend kind of interchangeably, even though myth and legend are not necessarily the same thing. If you look up the definitions, this is what um, legend is basically. It says, history and legends are historical facts, but history is an evidence-based record of the past, whereas legends are exaggerated stories of ancient truths. So this is what critics are saying and skeptics are saying is that um, yeah, Jesus lived, but he was a natural man. He was not supernatural. He didn't do any miracles and he didn't raise from the dead. And his disciples blew the story out of proportion and made all these exaggerations and made all these claims. And um, so again, uh, our goal is to refute that. If you go to the next slide, this is what the the, uh, there's a scripture we're going to get to in Peter. But Peter says, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths. This is the word he used. False stories or tales or legends or fables or fiction. So um, we're not following fiction. We're not following fables. We're not following legends. We're following uh, historical accurate documents. And so... Um, the the skeptics rely heavily on the idea of um, of this uh, this gap this this big gap here you know like I said they put this gap way out here and so they say there's plenty of time for error and corruption to creep in to the documents and to the story. And um, we have evidence to prove otherwise, but this is their assertion. So, um, and it's really an argument from silence because they haven't, you know, we have, we have in the New Testament, the amount of manuscripts we have is what the, study, the uh, uh, people who study the um, New Testament manuscripts say we have an embarrassment and an, uh, an abundance of Documents more than any other document in manuscripts of any other ancient writings in history. And they feel embarrassed because they have so many. But um, they, they try to uh, say that, well, there was other documents that were created, and, but it's, a, it's an argument from silence. They, there's nothing been produced. There's no documents, no other Gospels that... that, that are out there that we've found all of the the um, apocrypha apocryphal writings come in the second century. They're later, much later, and uh, they're much different than the, what we see in Scripture. So <clears throat> there's assertions that are made, and I, I've kind of already um, uh, hinted at it, but this is just I'm. Spelling it out here, it's possible that legend crept in after the historical Jesus lived. This legend could have been created and propagated by his disciples to keep this new Christianity alive. 
The Jesus of history was just a man with no supernatural powers, and his disciples created the supernatural Jesus after his death and supposed resurrection. And the second assertion is that the this is from anybody here uh, see the Da Vinci Code or read the book. Yeah, the amazing thing is this, okay, of secular books, remember whenever I did the teaching on the uniqueness of the Bible and how many Bibles are out there in circulation? It was like over 8 billion. Well, the next highest circulated book in history is the Da Vinci Code. Yeah. It's over 5, over five million, I think it was 5 million copies or something like that are out there. It's very popular. Well, what does the Da Vinci Code talk about? It, talks, it basically tries to undermine all of Scripture. And he basically says, the Bible that we have today is not what was written back then. And it's been corrupted over time. And this is what the, a quote from the Da Vinci Code says, the Bible has evolved through countless translations, editions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. Is that, is that a true statement? The answer is no. And we're gonna, but this is what a lot of people are leaning on. This is what our society, people that we interact with, are using as their source document for proving us wrong or proving the, trying to prove the Bible wrong. So this is what we're up against is people who are listening to the Da Vinci Code, which is a fictional book, uh, but it's trying to undermine the truth of the Scripture. And um, so we're going to do our best to uh, refute that. And uh, I just have a slide here. As you go to the next slide, just keep this in mind that there are no texts from this first century that contradict the Gospels. These are only theories and arguments from silence. So there's nothing out there that has been discovered saying, oh, this is, you know, this is, look at this document. This is completely contrary to what the New Testament manuscripts say. There's nothing except later. And those were what we consider apocryphal. So, in addressing this, um, here's this, if you go to the next slide, this is the scripture that um, is addressing this idea from Peter is talking about the fact that we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, so Peter is, is leaning heavily upon his own eyewitness experience. And now keep in mind, and we, we all have to remember this, and we I'm sure we do, these men died testifying of what they saw. You're not gonna testify you're not gonna die knowing you're lying. There's too many you know, every one of, of the almost every one of the apostles died a martyr's death. You're not going to hold to that lie if you made up some story. Somebody's going to spill the beans somewhere if it's a lie. But these men went to their death holding to the truth of what they proclaimed as eyewitnesses. And so that's, that's a very powerful testimony. And even to, you know, today, there are issues with eyewitness testimony. But when we get into looking at the, um, the, the culture of the time that Jesus lived, and how they handled oral tradition, uh, we'll see that it's very reliable. So, um, 
if you go to the next slide, I'm just kind of addressing this gap issue here between the crucifixion and the first documents. Now, again, <clears throat> um, I didn't know this. I asked him for a document showing us like the timeline of all the New Testament writings. And it, when you do, if you do a Google search and you look it up, you're going to find there's like many different lists and timelines. Now, I didn't put all the other books uh, of the New Testament in this timeline. Uh, I didn't, it was going to just be too busy. But before any of the Gospels, we have letters from James. So the brother of Jesus wrote, and, we, and that historically comes before the New Testament writings of the Gospels. We have some letters from Paul that preceded uh, Mark, the first Gospel to be written. So we have a lot of writing that, and they were referring to writings, and Paul refers to writings in his letters. So, but this is what we're looking at here is this gap. Now, if you go to, I think it's the next slide. Again, that's the gap that skeptics like to, uh, to go by, which is a much larger gap. And they like to push the Gospels off into close to the second century. And um, like I said, today, we're, uh, hopefully uh, over this series, uh, we're going to refute that and bring it all the way back. Like I said, we can bring this all the way back to closing that gap all the way at the cross. And um, it's the, it, to me, it's, it's, it's exciting to see what the Lord has done and how he did it and how confident we can be in what we're, what we're believing. And uh, so it's, it's, it's cool. It's very cool in my, in my uh, estimation. Now, C.S. Lewis... Um, let me get to my he he kind of refutes this whole um, legend idea and you know C.S. Lewis was obviously an author but he also was a, um, a scholar and he studied uh, much literature including legend and he's, he says this um in 1950, uh, in an essay, you can find this essay online called What Do We Make of Jesus? Or What Are We to Make of Jesus? He says, um, it's unlikely that it would, would be for the Jews to invent God becoming a man. This is difficult because his followers were all Jews. That is, they belonged to that nation, which of all others was convinced that there was only one God. That, that there could not be, possibly be another. It's very odd that this horrible invention about a religious leader should grow up among the one people in the earth least likely to make such a mistake. So in other words, what he's saying is that they're not going to make up a story about a, a God become man. They, they, they were monotheistic. And to say that Jesus is God without the understanding of the Trinity, they're going to be proclaiming another God. And that's very unlikely that the Hebrew people would do that. And so, um, it's just out of, 
it's out of uh, the realm of, of possibility, really, in his mind. And so he says this is implausible. In the next slide. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, let me have you go... Uh, well, you can leave it there. Um, go... Yes, let's leave it at that one. Um, he says... Th- uh, I'm perfectly convinced that whatever else the Gospels are, they're not legend. I've read a great deal of legend, and I'm quite clear that they are not the same sort of thing. They are not artistic enough to be legends. From an imaginative point of view, they are clumsy. They don't work up to things properly. Most of the life of Jesus is totally unknown to us. And as is the life of anyone else who lived at that time. And no people building a legend would allow that to be so. So it doesn't even have the characteristics of legend. When you look at the New Testament Gospels, they really are more, fall into the a line of historical documents. And if you, as you read, you read the fact that um, they mention times, and places, and people's names, and events, and geography, and cities, and villages, and lakes, and rivers, and this is not what you see in legend. You see things that are blown out of proportion, and um, and very exaggerated whenever you're talking about um, legend. So, like I said, the next slide says that it's implausible, which... Uh, I, uh, we've already addressed that. So if you go to the next slide, there was a gentleman in the 1800s who wrote a book called The Theory of Myths and Its Application to the Gospel History, Examined and Confuted, which is not necessarily a word that we use these days, but it basically means refuted. One cannot imagine how such a series of legends could arise in a historical age, obtain universal respect, and supplant the historical recollection of the true character of Jesus, if eyewitnesses were still at hand, who could be questioned respecting the truth of the recorded marvels? So in other words, if, there, if people are trying to foist a legend and, a, and false stories about Jesus, if the eyewitnesses are still alive, what are they going to do? They're going to refute it. They're going to argue against it. And they're going to say, you know, no, that's not the way it happened. And they're, gonna, they're going to refute those arguments. Just like when, remember when Peter in Acts, when we were just studying how when he was in the portico of Solomon and he's proclaiming the gospel to, about what Jesus did, he says, this Christ who you crucified, he's talking to the people that did it. If they didn't do it, what are they going to say? We didn't do that. We, didn't, we weren't part of that. Or that didn't happen. Jesus wasn't crucified. He really didn't die. They're going to refute it at that time, but they didn't refute it. They didn't try to argue against it. They were cut. So you can't foist legends and myths on people when there are eyewitnesses to refute it, the people that were there. And again, the apostles were committed to the message to the point where they died for it. And so they're not going to allow a lie to be propagated upon the people um, while they're alive. So, 
if you go to the next slide, there are other things and qualities that uh, that you see when you see in uh, legends or myths. It says the Gospels are not written in a style of myth. They do not contain the normal features found in myth. No overblown, spe- uh, spectacular, childishly exaggerated events. Nothing is arbitrary. Everything in the Gospels fits and is meaningful. Psychological depth is at a maximum. In myth, it's at a minimum. The character development in the Gospels, especially of Jesus, is remarkable. Myths are verbose. The Gospels are laconic, which means they're concise. The Gospels, Jesus and his disciples a lot of times say things in a very, very concise way, but impactful. But myths and legends are very verbose, and they they go on and on and on. And... um, if you go to the next slide, continuing talking about these characteristics of legend, not enough time for myth and legend to develop. Now, again, um, you know, critics will say that there was plenty of time for that to happen, but we're going to close this gap down to show that there's, there was not enough time for legend to develop. In fact, um, yeah, Norm Geisler, who is a, an apologist, uh, there's a study that was done uh, when they, they were looking at the development of legends, and it's a known fact that it takes greater than two generations for legends to develop and erase historical, the core of historical um, truth. So there was not enough, even if you go with the timeline of the, the critics, there's not enough time for greater than two. He said not just two, but greater than two generations, which a generation in that day is uh, 40 years, right? So it takes more than 80 years for legend to develop. And so that pushes it, you know, beyond uh, where we're talking about here because we're going to close that gap down uh, even smaller than this. So um, the next slide... I want to give you an example of... This is from the Gospel of Peter that was written in 125 AD. This is a... Now think of this. This is a picture at the resurrection site. Okay? So, in this account, the tomb is not only surrounded by Roman guards, but also by all the Jewish Pharisees and elders, as well as a great multitude from all the surrounding countryside who have come to watch the resurrection. Suddenly, in the night, the rings out, it rings out of the clouds a voice from heaven, and two men descend from heaven to the tomb. The stone over the door rolls back by itself, and they go into the tomb. And the three men come out of the tomb, two of them holding up the third man. The heads of the two men reach up into the clouds, but the head of the third man reaches beyond the clouds. So as they're, just think of this. As they're coming out of the tomb, the heads of the men go all the way up into the clouds. And the third man, his head goes even higher than the clouds. And then a cross comes out of the tomb, and a voice from heaven asks, Have you preached to them that sleep? And the cross answers, Yes. Now we've got a talking cross... We've got heads that go up into the heavens. This is the exaggerated, crazy, you know, stuff that you see. This is from the Gospel of Peter. 
which is an apocryphal, non-canonic gospel uh, letter. And so it's, this is the kind of stuff that you see whenever you're talking about um, myths and legends. And uh, the, like, again, the gospels that we read, if you're going to make up a story of a resurrection, the last people you're going to document finding the risen Savior is women. And we've gone over this before. But it blows your story, the credibility of your story out of the water. Because in those days, the testimony of women was not valued at all. So if you're going to make up a story, you're certainly not going to have women be the discoverers of, of the resurrection. You're going to have some, you know, really respected, um, you know, Pharisee or somebody of that nature discovering the the, the empty tomb, but that's not the way it is. They wrote it as it happened, and that's that's the beauty of what we have is eyewitness testimony. They just wrote what they saw, and they tell the story. And so, um, it, it's nothing as crazy as what the Gospel of Peter um, is is showing us. Again, I put this this. If you go to the next slide. Okay. Oh, this is this is um, the as I said before, the dating uh, of the Gospels, the dating of the writings is all over the place, and it's an educated guess. And uh, I might have gotten this this slide out of order, but anyway, it's okay. Um, they start with presuppositions, and the presupposition is that. Um, there's nothing supernatural. They don't believe in the supernatural at all. So, first of all, when they study this, the, the Gospels, and they, they read as historical documents, but then whenever they say Jesus did a miracle, they immediately discount, want to discount that. And uh, again, the prediction of the, um, of the destruction of the temple, which is... Now, <clears throat> if you think of it this way, if, if there was an event that happened... In, in our lifetime, which let's, let's just use COVID as an example, right? If you're writing uh, to somebody and you live during this time and you're telling people about what happened at this time, do you think you're going to mention the lockdown and the, the pandemic? Yeah, so um, if you're writing, you're going to mention... And this is the, the point: is that the the apostles, as they're writing, like the Book of Acts, which we are reading through, I believe the Book of Acts it ends, um, and there's no mention of the destruction of the temple. And all the writings that we have in New Testament, there's no mention at all of the destruction of the temple. You would think an event like that would have been recorded had it happened during the time that these were being written. But if they were all written before 70 AD, it makes sense that this is not mentioned because it didn't happen yet. Only, the only thing mentioned is Jesus' prediction that it's going to happen. And so these, these scholars, they, they rely heavily, and that's what you've got to keep in mind as we go through the study, is that this is where they're coming from and their, their presuppositions. 
so that's the, the important fact here, the second one, I'm sorry. Uh, if you go to the next slide, which is um, to refute the assertions that have been made by the critics, we're going to look at these uh, factors that help us to refute this. Uh, oral tradition and creeds. And um, there are a lot, creeds came, there's a lot of creeds in our Bible that came before scripture was written. But they have been included in scripture. So you will see those and we'll look at those. And there are some creeds that bring us all the way up to, like I said, all the way up to the cross. So oral tradition, we're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about the um, memory and um, the, the exercise of memory and memorization that the, um, the Palestinian people, you know, the people in Palestine, Jewish people uh, practiced, um, the value of eyewitness testimony and the, the early dating of the manuscripts um, that doesn't give it, they don't give enough time for legend to develop. So, uh, I keep reiterating this. We go to the next slide. This is what we're working on. They, they're saying that it's 30 to 60 years. We're saying that it's less than that. If you go to the next slide, that's their perspective of this gap. So, let's talk about oral tradition and how, when the event of the cross took place, which was a historically documented uh, event, and again, all New Testament scholars, whether they're liberal or, or conservative, agree Jesus died on the cross. They agree. And in fact, there's a guy named Bart Ehrman. He's uh, a professor of New Testament studies who's not a believer. He was a Christian, and then he walked away from the faith. And what he believes that Jesus died on the cross, he was crucified, that he was put in a tomb, he was buried, and he also agrees that his disciples believed that they saw him after the, resurre- after the resurrection, after he was dead. But his, his conclusion is that there was a mass hallucination. That's how they saw Jesus. Now, the interesting thing about that is that there's no such thing as mass hallucination. That's like saying we had a mass dream and everybody dreamt the same thing. It's just, that's not how dreams work. Dreams are independent and individual. And hallucinations are independent and individual. So if your best argument against the resurrection is that there was a mass hallucination, I think you're standing on some pretty thin ice. But this um, Bart Ehrman, that's his, his argument. So <clears throat> um, the ancient culture during the time of Jesus, they were an oral culture. Uh, the the illiteracy rate was somewhere in the 90% range. Not everybody read. So if you're going to communicate information, how is it going to be communicated? It's going to be communicated by speaking. And in fact, the people of Israel, they, they would prefer to hear something orally than to have it see it written down. And... Um, in, in those days, as you can see on the slide, that Greek school children could memorize the entire Iliad. They could, they could, they could recite the Iliad 
which is 52,000 words, or uh, the Odyssey by Homer, which is 134,560 words. And it was not uncommon for uh, young Jewish uh, 14-year-old boys, which would be the ones going to school, could recite the entire Old Testament, which is over 419,000 words. Have it memorized. So memory for this culture was high. Their ability to memorize things. Now, we've had people in our own church, I remember the bull bears, who, I forget if it was... um, if it was KK or if it was Tabby who recited the book of Jonah? Tabby. So, I mean, we're amazed when we see people that can memorize these large volumes of information. But in that culture, it was very common for people to have uh, things memorized and significant amounts of information memorized. So their memories were were tuned up ours um, we I have trouble remembering from one day to the next you know sometimes small amounts of information and as we get older I think that the you know they say memory leaks how many have experienced that <laughs> you know some of us it, it leaks more than others but um, there are actually we're going to get into this some studies that have been done about leaking memory um, but oral tradition was was high um, in in those days, and there was um, three different kinds of oral tradition that was practiced during that time. There was what they call informal, uncontrolled oral tradition, which was information that was committed to memory, but it was able to be added to and it could be modified. Okay, and then the next. Uh, which is more along the lines of the rabbinic idea, is that oral tradition was memorized and unchangeable and that it was um, only... <clears throat> Actually, this, this, this note here that says this is how the New Testament was transmitted uh, is actually wrong. I corrected that. Um, the rabbinic was that it was very rigid that you had to say it this way and it was remember this is all spoken in a community setting so if I get up here and I recite something and I say it wrong what's going to happen what are you guys going to do you're going to correct me because you know it right okay so what's why wasn't the New Testament communicated that way because it doesn't allow for the variations from the perspectives of the different eyewitnesses who wrote so the next, the third tradition is the way that it was communicated most likely is informal control where oral tradition is to be memorized and unchanged but it allows for variations in style without changing the core information. Because we have Matthew documents certain things that he focused on versus Mark versus Luke and John. So there's the core of information which is communicated, which is essential, and it's unchangeable. But there, it allowed for some variation in perspective. Now, this, this, this idea of, of the communication of the Gospels, how many here um, have ever been an eyewitness to a crime? And it was where there were multiple eyewitnesses. 
Okay, I'm sure that your experience was that you saw something, when, and then when you talked to the other people, they saw something different. Like, just ask a husband and a wife, you know, what they observe about certain circumstances, and you're going to have a lot of different information. Wives will pick up, oh, she was wearing this kind of, you know, ribbon in her hair, and she had this outfit on, and she had these shoes on, and she looked like this, and she walked this way, whatever. And a guy said, well, she had brown hair. You know, I mean, we're, we're, we're like my, my daughters used to say whenever I was uh, talking to them about, you know, oh, that girl, I remember talking to Emily about gymnastics. Well, that girl, she was really good. Which girl? I said, well, the one, you know, with the brown hair. Well, what color leotard was she wearing? I don't know. So there, there's, there's things that I observe and notice that I, 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 that, aren't, that are important to me, but they're not as important to somebody else. But the core, and this is the point, is that, is that the apostles, when they communicated, they communicated the Lord used their personality. He used their assignment. They had a special assignment that they were to communicate um, to a certain audience of people. Um, because, for example, Matthew was writing to the Jewish people, so he wrote very, he wrote genealogies, and he was very specific, whereas um, Mark wrote differently and was very br- uh, a brief about certain things. And Mark's characterized by saying, immediately, uh, this happened, and immediately, Jesus did that. Luke, on the other hand, was a physician, and he was trying to take an orderly account. Like, Mark wasn't very orderly. Mark isn't really focused on order. But Luke was very focused on chronology. And so he wrote in a very chronological way. So this oral tradition that was communicated was... The the core of the message was to be communicated. and Obviously, the core was the events of the, the miracles that Jesus did, the life that he lived the death on the cross, the resurrection, and the witness, them seeing him after he was resurrected, um, that, that all is the same and is consistent throughout all the Gospels. Um, so this is, and this is, the thing that, that people will argue is that it's like the telephone game. Anybody here play the telephone game in school? Okay, so what's the idea of the telephone game? is that you've got a line of people and one person at the beginning whispers into the ear of the person next to them. You only get one chance and you have to whisper it. And then they whisper to the next person and the next person and the next person. What's the fun of the telephone game? It comes out all muddled, right? Whatever was the first message never ends up being the last. And that's what critics will try to say that that's what happened to the New Testament. And that is not at all what the way it went. Because this was done in a community uh, setting. And when they proclaimed, they proclaimed it in a community setting. If I stand up here and I quote something from the Bible and it's wrong, what are you guys going to do? You're going to say it's wrong. For example, how many here um, read bedtime stories to your children? And how many of your children wanted to hear the same bedtime story over and over and over again? What happens whenever, I, I don't know, dads are usually more like, likely to do this, where you actually start messing with the story. 
<laughs> and you start twisting it up a bit, right? What happens whenever you do that? After you've read that bedtime story so many times and you start messing it up, what happens? Daddy, that's not the way it goes. <laughs> right? And the same thing. I mean, when you do it orally and you do it in a community setting, you're going to be corrected. And so um, it's not the telephone game. It's not hidden. It's not secret. It's not, it's not one person whispering to another. And the fact is that we can always go back to the source. And so and the sources were very reliable sources. And in fact, once we have scripture, um, the writings, we can go back and refer to those. So we're not talking about the telephone game. We're not playing uh, that game. We're, we're standing on very reliable uh, sources. And, um, and again, it was memory in a community setting is different because it's, um, it's harder to make a mistake whenever you uh, have other people that can correct it. And so it helps hold the message accountable. <clears throat> So, memory plays an important message, if you go to the next slide, uh, in um, keeping the story straight. Critics cite problems with it, and memory leaks, and we'll get into that. Um, memory, they say, becomes clouded and obscured. There was a study done, remember the Challenger disaster? So, there was a study done uh, at uh, this uh, university, SMU, which I don't even know where SMU is, but uh, in uh, this Challenger exploded on um, just a few seconds into flight, right? And remember, the, there, was, there was significance about it because there was a, a teacher on board who was going to be teaching a class from space to her students. And so at this university, what they did is they asked freshman students, where were you when the Challenger incident happened and how did you find out about it? Just two questions. And they answered the question. Then they asked them again when they were seniors the same group. They asked them the same questions. And about half of them gave a different answer than the first answer. And so this is where the critics will say, see, memory leaks. Their answer that they gave the second questioning three years later or four years later was different than the first and so they said well then memory is inaccurate and they asked them well of the two they showed them the two different answers that they had given and they said which one is more accurate and they all most of them said the more recent one was more accurate um but other people looked at that study and this is the study this is the study that Bible critics will refer to saying memory is not reliable. And, um, but the problem with that study was that it was people who had no, no personal skin in the game with the challenger. If you had asked, for example, the astronaut teams that were involved in that and the people that were at NASA that were involved in that particular mission uh, about their memory of it, where they were when it happened, I, they would give a completely different answer. And there actually have been studies that have been done to show that when you are personally involved in an event, your memory retention is much higher. 
and so it's it, it, it has to do with the fact that um, it was individual they were asking, not in a corporate setting, and the fact that they really weren't impacted personally by that. It was just an event they saw on TV. How many here remember that were alive? Remember seeing the Twin Towers uh, go down in 2001? Do you remember where you were? Yes. So do I. So, um, and they say that once events have been established in your memory for like five years, it's kind of locked in. Whatever you remember at that point, it's locked in. But um, it, what studies have shown is that group interaction, whenever it's involved in a group and there's there's a personal investment in the event. Now, do you think that the apostles were personally uh, invested in the events of the gospel? Yes, they were. They, they, they were to the point of death, right? They were very invested in this. So their memory um, uh, was not clouded. They didn't forget what Jesus did. They didn't have um, any issues with remembering what went on. Um, so it was more corporate. The, the gospel messages are shared orally in churches. It involved uh, corporate. And the, uh, basically the apostles became the guardians of the message. And they would um, be the ones to make sure the message was given accurately and correctly. And uh, I think, I'm time-wise, am I... We're at the end here? Okay. So I'm going to stop here. Uh, and I think um, we've got a lot more to go. Uh, I just am, um, let me see where I am in my notes here to see how far I got. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I'm going to stop here. We'll pick it up uh, on memory, finish up on memory the next time. And um, then we're going to get into um, eyewitness testimony after that. And from that, we're going to go into the um, creeds. And um, we'll finish up on creeds and get into manuscripts and um, hopefully uh, close that gap and um, finish the study. So thank you.